Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for all the many good things that you do give to us, Lord, and life and breath and so many wonderful things. We pray, Lord, that as we study your resurrection and ascension, that we would come to a greater understanding of what it means for us to have you interceding for us at your right hand, and what a wonderful blessing that is to us, and how you have changed the fabric of reality itself through your resurrection and ascension, and that those things would uh, change our hearts and how we live in light of that. And it's in your Son's name we ask. Amen. So last week we talked a little bit about the crucifixion and specifically how that not only breaks the, uh, the guilt of our sin, but the power of sin in our lives by kind of unfolding and unpackaging what it means for Christ to take hell on the cross for us. And that opened up a lot of questions about what hell is and how it's descended, uh, what it actually means for Christ to descend into hell. So I promised that this week, hey guys, I promised that this week we would kind of look at the ancient view of the universe, the ancient cosmology, and how that actually makes us, it helps us understand the ascension and resurrection and even the cross a lot better. So this week we're going to be talking about uh, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And so I thought that the two things that I want to talk about today is first, I just wanted to go over a brief, I thought it'd be helpful to have a, a brief apologetic of why we should believe the resurrection, um, why that actually makes sense, why it's reasonable and rational to believe that. And then the second thing is, what is the actual importance of the resurrection and ascension? How is it, how is like something like the ascension so essential to our salvation um, that it gets a significant portion. And a lot, a lot of Reformed theologians, pastors, and catechisms would spend a significant amount of time about the ascension. And so I thought it would be really good just to kind of delve into that. And oftentimes it doesn't really make much sense that why this is so important. So I thought that it would be helpful to unpack how they viewed the universe and how the ascension related to that as Christ is entering into the, the heavenly temple and the heavenly holy of holies. So those are two things that hopefully we'll talk about today. So the first thing is like, why should we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, before asking whether or not you know, Christianity is true or the, whether the resurrection happened um, or it could even be helpful to us, I think it's good to clear away a lot of the hype and the rhetoric that surrounds his life and death. What are like the, the facts that we can know about the death of Jesus today? Well, I think today, even very liberal scholars agree about some basic data. Um, and it's helpful for us to kind of look at the facts of the case that, that hostile sources l- believe to be true, as well as then the Christian view. Um, because when we look at this, it doesn't matter whether or not we think the resurrection is a really helpful thing for our hearts to make us feel better if it's not true. It's not going to help us. It's not going to change reality if we can't know that this is a historical fact. Um, and so it doesn't matter if it's fi- we find it helpful or meaningful or fulfilling. Whether or not that this actually happened and changed things is what we need to know. Um, so, what happened in history is not beyond investigation. 
That's part, primarily what we have to say. It's not beyond investigation. It's not inherently meaningless. Because the earliest Christians testified to many, ver- many elements about the resurrection and the death of Christ, even to the point of death and martyrdom. And they were willing to go to their deaths for what they said they saw with their eyes and experienced. Um, so first, like Jesus was a real person. Um, most scholars agree that Jesus was a real person who lived and died in the first century Palestine. This is, this is attested by a lot of hostile sources in the ancient world from that century, as well as Christian ones. There was Tacitus, who is a, a Roman historian, and his annals wrote about Jesus. Uh, Josephus, who was alive at that time, maybe a little later on, he wrote about the antiquities of the Jews. And even the, even the other Jewish priests and religious elite talked about it in, in what was called the Babylonian Talmud. Um, uh, one really, really liberal scholar today, Marcus Borg, who helped, write, who helped found the, the Jesus Seminar, he says that Christ's death by the Roman crucifixion is one of the most certain facts about the historical Jesus that we can know. Um, so as I said, there are numerous other claims from Roman and Jewish sources. Um, according to that Jewish writing, book of writings, the Talmud, they said Yeshua, or Jesus, was a false prophet who was hanged on a tree on Passover for sorcery and blasphemy. So, Jewish scholars today who don't believe in Jesus, one guy named Joseph Klossner says that they have identified several different references to Jesus in these writings, that he was a rabbi whose mother, Miriam and Mary, or Mary, was married to a carpenter who nevertheless, Joseph was not his natural father. So everyone thought he was basically a bastard. They thought everyone, everyone recognized that and they knew that Jesus was not the son of Joseph. Um, so like there's off, off, often... You see in, in, the new, in uh, ancient writings this whole understanding of Nazareth being a Roman camp and they would often take advantage of uh, Jewish women. And so everyone kind of even like, hinted at that, that what good can come out of Nazareth? In the, even, the, even the New Testament talks like that. So they had that conception of Jesus. Um, Jesus, even they said, went with his family to Egypt. He returned to Judea and he made disciples. He performed m- miracles by sorcery, he led all of Israel astray, and then finally he was deserted at his trial without any defenders, and he was crucified on Passover Eve. And that's, that's a hostile source saying that from that era, from that time frame. So, second, we also know that Jesus was condemned to die by the Romans. According to many sources, Jesus was condemned to die for those specific reasons that we kind of just went over. He attempted to lead Israel astray by miraculous deeds, and his enemies... As we read in the New Testament, many other sources show that his enemies said that he did these works of sorcery by the devil. Um, And then he was condemned to die specifically for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. So Jesus was then handed over to Pontius Pilate by the Jewish leaders in Palestine. All of those things are, are written by Jewish leaders from that time period. Pretty amazing similarities with the New Testament. Um... Third, we see that Jesus was executed by crucifixion. Like that's another important fact. Um, and it's probably one of the m- most well-known facts in the ancient world. He, uh, historians and politicians of that century spoke of the events that happened in Jerusalem. 
just kind of like how we, we all knew about the, the death of Osama bin Laden, everyone was talking about the death of this insurgent Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, this wasn't just like, oh, nobody knows what's going on. And it was like, no, everybody, all the leaders, all the, all the wheelers and dealers of society knew that this was happening. One liberal Jewish rabbi, Samuel Sandmill, he said he, that certain bare facts are historically not to be doubted. Jesus emerged into public notice in Galilee when Herod Antipas was its tetrarch, one of, his, one of the rulers, and he was a real person and a leader of a movement. He had followers they called disciples. So the claim was made either by him or for him that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He went to, from Galilee to Jerusalem, possibly in AD 29 or 30, and there he was executed, crucified by the Romans as a political rebel. After his death, this guy is still writing and saying, his disciples believed that he was resurrected. He'd gone to heaven and he would return to the earth at the appointed time for final do- divine judgment of mankind. That's what um, a huge liberal scholar, Jewish scholar, is saying. Um, that, that those things can be known as historical facts. So we also know from history how successful the Romans were at crucifixions. Uh, the description of in the Gospels, of the spear being thrust through his side and ensuing, like there's all this flow of blood and water happening, um, fits all the routine crucifixion accounts that we have about Roman military history from Roman military historians today, as well as modern medicine. Like modern medicine, looking at this account, would, can, can account for every single thing that happened. That this is how it would happen, how the body would separate the blood and the water in this way. Um, so other theories about Jesus' death, like the swoon theory, where he, where people speculate that he just, you know, he didn't really die. He just kind of got off the cross and nursed himself back to health and lived out his days in natural life, and then he just died. Um, those things are pretty ridiculous when you understand, like, yes, he was crucified by the Romans, and they were really good at killing people. I mean, they were really good. And so... He'd have to survive a spear piercing his heart and be able to, by, sh- by sheer willpower, not let all this blood just kind of come out. So um, all of those things are very implausible and, uh, and basically physically impossible. It would take a miracle for Jesus not to be killed in the way that he was crucified to not die, which would bring in miracles, you know. <laughs> um, other people say, like the Muslims in the, in the book of Quran in Surah 4, 157, it says that the Romans never killed him, but they were made to think that they did. Um, there's no real supporting argument that's given, but the obvious question arises that are we really you know, supposed to believe that the Roman government and the officers and, and all of Jerusalem were made to think that he was crucified when they didn't really do it? Um, it's pretty pretty ridiculous claim knowing that he was crucified by the Romans. If he was, like they would not have failed in killing him. They were they were excellent at doing this. So it's a kind of a ludicrous claim. Also, we also see because like this, the Quran was written six centuries after this event happened. So we have a lot more reason to believe things that were written within fifty years of these events as much more plausible eyewitness accounts where everyone is saying he was crucified by the Romans. Um, 
Jewish, Christian, and Roman historians and writers all said the same thing. Um, you know, it's like someone, like these Romans were so good at it, like they, people who've been around this, they, they, who've, who've, who've seen death and been around a lot of it, you can tell when someone is dead and you can sense it. And I don't, the Romans would not have let this political rebel go if they knew he was alive. Um, and they made sure of it by throwing that spear into his heart. Uh, the fourth thing is that Jesus was buried in his tomb after his death. So, um, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all the gospel accounts, and P- Pilate had to give permission to g- have him buried in his tomb. Um, and they were he was assisted by Nicodemus. Uh, so these two big people in the, in the Jewish world, in the Sanhedrin, in their council, got permission to bury Jesus um, only after, confer- after, after the centurion confirmed that he was dead, as we see in Mark 15. Um, so most, most people agree that he was buried in the tomb. Some people argue that, um, that, that that could be contested, but most of the witnesses from that century all claim that this is what happened. He was buried in the tomb. Um, next, that Jesus' tomb was empty two days after his death. Uh, so this claim shouldn't, should, uh, shouldn't be controversial today since it was acknowledged by the Romans and the Jews as well as the Christians by the first century. Uh, of course, there were very different arguments as to why the tomb was empty, but the Jewish leaders themselves all claimed that the disciples stole his body. So even his empty tomb is something that we can really, we can really say, okay, a lot of witnesses said this is what happened, hostile and otherwise. Um, and uh, several liberal scholars and other people point out that this is a fact as well. Uh, one writer says that you can't object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. If you are, it shows that you have a bias against it, that there's something that's at work because the evidence is all pointing in this direction. Uh, six, the, the Jesus' followers claim to see him alive. The disciples of Jesus believe that he was raised from the dead, and he appeared to many of them on many occasions. He first appeared to women, which in the first century would never have qualified in a Roman or Jewish court of law as a, te- as a witness. So the fact that this is mentioned I think really lends a lot of credibility to the, to the New Testament because it's stating these things as it is. It's not trying to appease that century's understanding of, of reality. It's kind of coming in against that. Um, Jesus' disciples even went so far after all these appearances to say that they worshipped him as God and they met with him in meals after his, after his death and then his resurrection. Um, the Roman historian Suetonius, who's a Roman official, said that, uh, that these Christians in AD 48 all worshipped this Jesus Christ who they claimed to be meeting with them and worshipping, that they'd be worshipping in his presence. Uh, in a letter to the emperor Trajan, Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of what is now Turkey, he said that the Christians gathered every Sunday to pray to Jesus as to a God, and 
that they, they receive a meal at which Christ presided. So this is like, this is what they believe. This is what the early church believed, and this is, they truly believed that they claimed to see him alive and that he was God who they worshipped. Um, so what do we make of other kind of explanations? Well, some people say that there was this, this hallucination, a mass hallucination, or a spiritual experience of all these like depressed, despairing disciples, you know, like, who are just like totally at the end of their rope, and they're just like, oh, they just conjured this mass hallucination. Um, others say that the resurrection was kind of exaggerated with time, with, with distance over the original events, like a kind of a big fish story, or like, how many of you guys played the game Telephone? Um, where just like, it keeps growing and growing, and by the end of it, it's just like nothing like the original story. Well, the exact opposite is true. You know, it's, it's pretty much impossible for people to have hallucinations in a mass amount of the exact same thing in several different incidences all over the world. Like, that's, that's it's pretty improbable and impossible. And secondly, all the biggest, craziest, wackoest claims about Christianity came from Jerusalem at the center of the event, and it wasn't like they were like, oh, off in China somewhere where that they started claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. It was like, no, there's like within a decade of the event happening, they were all in the center of the epicenter of where it happened, and it could have been disproven if it was wrong. So it wasn't like a big fish story where like, oh, you know, Jesus is my friend, he's in my heart, and then it extrapolated, he's alive, and, and then he's resurrected, you know. Um, the Jewish scholar, uh, Pinchas Lapid, actually says, looking at the evidence, that he thinks that Jesus was raised from the dead. He, he made waves in the, in the liberal world, scholarship world, because he looked at the evidence and all the theories that all those alternative, alternative explanations of the resurrection couldn't make sense of the historical facts that you can know. And whatever happened, it is certain that the disciples certainly believed that they saw the risen Jesus and they worshipped him. Um, and one of the main reasons that this Jewish scholar that thinks that you know, Jesus really resurrected was that, that Jesus' enemies never presented the body. Um, the hostile sources that present different rationale for the empty tomb could never present anything. They left the door open to other possible explanations. Um, one of my professors, Michael Horton, writes that he said, although unable to locate Jesus dead or alive, the very fact that the Jewish and Roman leaders sought alternative explanations for the resurrection, it really demonstrates that the empty tomb was a historical fact and that all these rumors were going around that these people were having these experiences. Um, for the gospel story to have come to an easy, abrupt end, he says that the authorities would only have to produce a body. So all of those things are things that we can know, that we can really know and kind of latch on to that this isn't, irrational to hold to. The controversial claim is not that Jesus lived, died, and was buried, and there was an empty tomb. Um, but what are some other arguments for the resurrection? Like why, at the end of the day, um, should, we, we, should we like latch onto this? Well, there's so many corroborating accounts that we've talked about and we've heard that the New Testament itself is giving us those eyewitness accounts and those historical 
access to what happened to Jesus. Um, when we think about the New Testament, we think of like a finished book that's like already, oh, it's like someone just gave it to us. You know what I mean? Like, but it was actually a lot of independent people who were connected in, this, in the church, but they were writing these eyewitness testimonies and accounts of the first century event as they saw it. And they include hundreds of names of different people because this was the reality that has been verified by archaeology and a lot of historical studies, but you could go and ask all these people that they, who, who, they, who, who saw the resurrected Lord. So there's nothing that should allow us to just come in and like throw the whole thing away. There's th- we, we should come in and say, okay, let's, let's look at this and, and kind of lead through to see what it's saying. The New Testament itself uh, enjoys unrivaled transmission history compared to any ancient document and even modern documents. Um, historians today rely on the eyewitness testimonies of Thucydides who wrote about the Peloponnesian War in Greece. And you can pick up an English edition at Amazon. And, but there are only eight copies. And the earliest ones are 1,300 years after they were written. Uh, and nobody tw- questions that. Nobody says, oh, we shouldn't believe Thucydides. You know, like everyone believes that this, oh, yes, yeah, is probably really what happened. He might have extrapolated little things, but. However, you know, what would be possessed with the fragments of the New Testament all are within a decade or less, or decades of the, or- of the, origi- uh, sorry, of the original. And then we have tens of thousands of copies. That's just like unheard of. Um, these massive eyewitness accounts compiled into what we call the New Testament are some of the best documents that we have of any text from the ancient world. So, and that, uh, we also have all the evidence of these Old Testament prophecies. Um, the first century Jews, uh, you know, maybe someone from that time period could have claimed one or two of these prophecies to be fulfilled. But for one person to fulfill hundreds of these prophecies that were made centuries before is really statistically impossible. Like it's really difficult to orchestrate all that. Um, Jesus is kind of like the only one who fits fits into that that mold, um, which is which is really why we can see that even people like these liberal scholars are saying all these things really did happen. All these things really took place. But the thing that they don't want to hold on to of the resurrection and that he, be, that he is who he claimed to be is really because of a theological bias. It's really because they're anti-supernatural and, and can't believe in miracles. Or they just can't stomach the idea that Jesus is Lord. Um, that's that's so much behind a lot of the hatred and like the arguments and the, the scholarship that's kind of like wacky against the resurrection. Uh, does that make sense so far? I know that was kind of like a lot, um, but a lot of those things do provide us with a really good a good grounding and foundation that this is not only probable but that it actually did happen. The only 
possible explanation for all these different things coming together and people willing to be willing to kill, be killed for it is the resurrection. Um, and I think that also we, we, we have a really, another thing we think about is a wacky understanding of what is true. Like, plausible verifiability, sure, it's, it's not absolute certainty. I don't have absolute certainty that this Jesus rose from the dead. But truth, um, that, that's true. But if we have to have absolute certainty for anything, we can't know anything. Like, honest, like the, the, at, the end of the day, at the end of the day, we don't have that standard for anything that we talk about. I don't have absolute certainty that if I sit in that chair, it's not going to fall apart. I don't have absolute certainty about anything. Like, I, ha- I, ha- I have to doubt my senses. I'd have to doubt absolutely everything about what I believe and look at. That, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I existed 10 seconds ago. I'm, I don't have absolute certainty that I did. Like, I, I can't go back and look at 10 seconds ago. So, I know I'm making a joke of it, but that's, it's true. Like, nobody can have absolute certainty about absolutely anything. Um, we have to kind of go out on promise. We have to go out on trust on all kinds of things all the time, on all kinds of hosts of different issues. Like, I go to the store, I'm going to get a piece of chicken. I hope it doesn't have poison. You know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe Trader Joe's didn't just inject a bunch of crap into this and I'm going to die. You know, like, I have to believe to get in my car, it's just not going to explode. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it could do that. And that would be very sad. But, um, but you see what I'm saying? Like that uh, nothing can be known if we have to have absolute certainty about it. But we can know true things with plausible verifiability. So that's, that's very different. So certainty versus what is verifiable and plausible. And we can know about the resurrection because we have these eyewitness testimonies from written within decades of the events. Which isn't crazy. People write about World War II all the time and we're not saying that they're cuckoo. You know, like, and it happened 60 some years ago. Like, this happens all the time. But it, but we, we can look at these and say, yeah, this makes actually make sense of the evidence and this amazing reality. Uh, this is verifiable and true and plausible. Um, so, Wow. Um, so briefly, the resurrection, you know, if it is true, if we can know like Thomas and we can see him and we can know him from his word and from his spirit and from the church, like that all these things are really truly have happened and we can say, my Lord and my God, um, we, we can be sh- certain with that kind of truth and that reality that this isn't something that we can we just made up. Like, if he, if we made it up, Paul himself said, "We're still in our sins and we're to be pitied." Um, he's not gonna, he's not following this. He's not gonna be good and moral person just because it makes him feel good. It's like if this isn't true, we should stop the whole charade. We should just stop this whole thing, and go home, and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if it is real, then it, it makes us get confronted by the absolute claims of his lordship and his salvation. And um, 
the only real proper response is, is, is to our bend our knee and really recognize that He is who He said He is and what He claimed about us and the world is reality. Um, so the resurrection means that Jesus' claims for Himself have to be ours. That He was the one who claimed to be the eternal Son of the Father who came down from heaven. All the things that we were learning about earlier this quarter. That He is, he is God incarnate that he prophesied his own death and resurrection. The religious leaders of his time all knew he was blaspheming, and he didn't say, oh yeah, I shouldn't do that. He's like, yeah, he, yeah, he knew. And he was like, yeah, that's, it's true. He made himself equal with God, and he didn't dispute it. That he's Yahweh, who has this role of judgment that he's going to have on the last day, which all the Old Testament prophets said only Yahweh can do. So he claimed to be Yahweh, to be God himself. So the only thing that we're left to do, you know, it, we, we hear Paul as he's going out to all the pagans in Athens, and, and he tells us what must we do. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day when he will judge the righteous by a man who's he appointed and this he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. And like today, having heard that report, we're all kind of faced with that decision. Um, and like the, the Greeks of that time period, many people mocked that idea, but other people were, you know, awakened by that. And they said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and joined him, and hearing him reason through these things, they believed. And some of them who were, there, who were among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and then a woman named Damaris and so many others with them. Um, so the resurrection is something that's just like a powerful, powerful reality that makes everything else fall into place, the whole, the whole Bible. And what Jesus said about himself and the word of God and scripture in many ways falls on the crux of this reality of the resurrection. Um, and if that was true, then we can really we can trust everything else the Bible has to say. Um, but more importantly, I think like after presenting those things as kind of like objective facts and evidences, um, ultimately this isn't that that isn't just the Christian claim. Um, Christianity isn't just objective facts and evidences and those kind of things. It's it's primarily fellowship and communion with the living God, and, and worshiping, like, like all the early testimonies said, worshiping and adoring Jesus, who's our Savior and our friend. He's God with us. Um, so the resurrection isn't just meant to be this like category over here of objective facts that you just can just like, okay, that's great, I think it's true, but it's primarily God's self-revelation of His love, of who He is for us. And because that is reality, it's also objective fact. Does that make sense? Like, you, we, we can't separate those things. We can't leave Jesus out in history, in objective world, the objective sphere, um, because that actually does us no good if we don't say, my Lord and my God. Um, it's more than just facts. facts. It's, it's, it's our union and communion with the living God. And so the, the resurrection is really very foundational for much of 
Christianity for good reason, because it vindicates Jesus' claim to be God and that his sacrifice was accepted by, by the Father. And it demonstrates his victory over death. And then it secures our resurrection and glory, as we heard about, um, I guess, two weeks ago when Joel Fitzpatrick was preaching. Uh, it secures that reality for us and our glory. But it also uh, really brings about a cosmic change to reality. It brings about a whole new way of the universe that didn't exist. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, that's, uh, that'll help us move into our second point about the resurrection ascension and what that actually means. But before I go on, any questions about what we've talked about so far? I know there's a lot of uh, data and deep apologetic kind of stuff, but any thoughts or questions? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that, I think actually like some of the n- more recent scholarship has shown it to be authentic. Um, there's been a several different things that have shown that to be part of his original writings, but I don't, it's not necessary for that to be the case for me to think that there are lots of other hostile sources that account for Jesus's life, death, the resur- uh, burial, and empty tomb. So, some of the things that are in there that sound kind of Christian that people claim to be edited and later added on by Christian editors and writers. Um, if that's true, that I mean, it's okay. We don't have to have Josephus added to the canon of like hostile sources, if that makes sense. Um, but, but actually, I think there are, are good arguments that, that, is, that those, those writings are original. So I think it's at least contestable. <laughs> Good question. Um, so, oh man, I spent a little too much time on that, but that's good. No, it's okay. I can always keep go on next week if we have to. Um, so, last week we kind of briefly after this after this uh, Sunday school lesson, we're talking about the descent into hell and why that was like. It's kind of, some some of us are still kind of wrapping our minds around that, and I started talking about some of the ancient view of the, of the cosmos, of the universe, and how it relates to how they viewed the world as, like a, as, a, as a temple. That the temple in Jerusalem, in many ways, was how they envisioned everything. That's kind of a weird for us to think about, but how they thought of meaning in the universe and how they viewed things was through this kind of lens. Um, I don't know if you, are, if you remember from the first quarter, when we, were, when we were going through Genesis 1 to 3 for a lot, a lot, a long time, we talked a lot about how everything was moving. Adam had this pattern of 1 and 7, where he was supposed to mimic God and follow after him and eventually bring heaven to earth and have earth mirror heaven and bring God's glory and spread it all over the whole earth so that it would bring about this greater reality. And he was going to enter into that Sabbath rest and follow God's pattern. Um, well, that's very much behind a lot of this. Uh, in the, there's all kinds of places in the Bible where there's all kinds of different things that we hear in it that kind of don't make sense. Like Isaiah 66 says that heaven is my throne, speaking of God, and the earth is my footstool. Um, Psalm 48 says that Mount Zion 
is the mountain and, and of the Lord. And a lot of Psalms compare the heavens to God's temple and his throne room. Um, well, a lot of those things are just kind of the backdrop of how they envisioned that, that, that there's a different reality going on than what we see. It may not, heaven may not be like physically above us, but there's a different order in reality. Um, maybe kind of how we think about a different parallel universe, a different place or kind of place that's outside of our actual vision that's existing. And they try to make sense of that with this kind of view of the universe. Um, so real briefly, uh, if you're familiar with the temple, they, they had the Holy of Holies where the high priest would bring the sacrifice. They had the holy place where the priests were allowed to be and they had a lot of different artifacts there. And then they had different courts. They had a court of priests and the court of Israel, an outer court where the women could be, and they had a court of Gentiles. Like the Gentiles weren't even allowed in, the, even in any part of the inner sanctum. And then outside of that, outside of Israel and Jerusalem, they talked about it being this outer darkness. Um, well, Adam was supposed to be, you know, on the earth cultivating the garden, cultivating this temple, the temple of Garden of Eden, as we talked about. And he was supposed to spread that all over the world and follow God's plan that he had for him and eventually bring his sacrifice into God's presence where he would have that declaration of well done, my good and faithful servant. And he would bring the whole world into glory. Um, I know it's been several months since we talked about that, but just as a refresher. So what the whole world was moving towards, what God wanted was for a human to bring that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, the sacrifice that God called for with Adam into God's presence and that the whole world would be full of God's glory. So there's all kinds of different terms that we kind of see throughout the entire Bible where it talks about um, God's, the heavens, where the, we kind of, kind of read these different terms, or we read the ones like the highest heavens, where Paul was, was taken up into this vision in 2 Corinthians to the seventh heaven or third heaven. And we have these, all these kind of different things where we hear about the court or the sanctuary. And then in, the, in creation account, there's the firmament where the sun, moon, and stars are. And then we hear about these like weird places like Sheol all throughout the Old Testament. And they really are kind of odd sounding to us. I mean, we're honest. Like, this kind of sounds kind of weird. We don't know what to do with it. Um, but there was this real reality that God had in, in the highest heavens where he, he dwelt. Everything was his perfect will. Everything was done according to his perfect will and his completion. And, and yet then he had this court in which he sat. Like, so you see all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, angels and all kinds of beings around God, praising his name. Through Revelation we see that. In Isaiah 60, um, all of these different creatures before his throne praising him and continually declaring things before him. And 
And even weird passages like in Job where Satan is like showing up at the courtroom of heaven and he's just like talking to God. And you're like, what's that? What's, going, what's that all about? Um, but in many ways, like the, his, the heavens where he dwelled was his, as we read in that passage, that was his throne. And the highest heavens were, was where his perfect will was done. And he's constantly surrounded by all these angelic beings who are declaring his praise. And he creates the world and he has the firmament, the sun, moon, and stars below that. Um, and then the earth. And then, as we talked about last week, the Sheol being like kind of this place of death and the afterlife. Um, well, with, with Adam's sin into this world, we had, if you, if you, if you guys remember from uh, like the reading of the law a couple weeks ago, we, we hear about it quite often, but the idea that this cloud, uh, this, this veil has been cast over the earth, speaking about death. Um, and, and we have other passages where we hear that Satan is the prince of power of the air who rules this present evil age. Well, with, we talked about the first quarter that when Adam sinned, he enters into this, in some sense, alliance with Satan. And this, this whole realm, this whole present evil age is put under, hi, under his control. And we're all blinded by the prince of power of the air. And in some sense, he has control over this whole thing. And the rulers and principalities of this present evil age, in some sense, dominate this, our present life and present existence. Um, we talked about that last week, about how, how the demonic actually function and they work by controlling our passions and in many ways dominating our very existence by continually feeding our passions through all kinds of things around us. Um, and this whole world, in some sense, descends into chaos, into death and Sheol. And it's ruled by, by, by Satan and by these rulers and principalities who are in the heavenly places. Um, they're in the courtroom of God. And they're constantly accusing people because of the sin that they have. Satan is a taskmaster and the wages of sin is death. And he's up there and he's able to accuse people because this is his realm and they, humans, are under that bondage of sin and death. We're under the slave master of sin. Um, Does that make sense so far? This is kind of like a really rough, brief sketch and overview. But when... Christ comes into the world in his descent. He, he comes from the heavens and he's outside of this realm of sin and death and he's entering into it in order to redeem us from those things. So when, when we hear of redemption from sin, death, and hell, Christ is descending into this world that is, that is kind of overcome by the consequences of our sin. And everything is dominated by the result of sin and death. By, by some kind of, like we can think of it almost like karma. Um, where, th- where 
what goes around kind of comes around. That, that in some sense of reality, people do get something of what they deserve. And it's like, it's this kind of this impaired view, view of justice. Um, but, it's, but people get control of things through violence. People kind of climb up this ladder through taking control of things. And that is, the, that is the world of darkness that Christ is entering into. And, and so he's entering into this world um, to undo the thing that's, that Adam had done as the second Adam. He's coming into this world to, un, to come to the very depths in order to save it all. And that's why Christ had to, in some sense, descend into hell, into our hell, in order to bring everything up into God's salvation. Uh, if, if he had not done that, it's not that God couldn't do anything, but it would just mean that it would be just judgment. There would be no salvation. Um, so, what, what, what Christ's work is coming to do is to cleanse this whole universe. He's not just coming to save us as individuals, when the New Testament kind of presents what he's doing, he's, he's taking up the whole universe into his salvation and he's doing what Adam should have done and, and bringing heaven to earth. Um, so that's kind of like very much the backdrop of why the ascension is important. So bear with me and I, I hopefully it'll all come together. Um, that's a lot of, a lot of stuff. Uh, but so what is, what is the ascension? Uh, oh man. So we'll kind of hopefully get to the ascension. Um, (laughs) Um, So what is the ascension? Maybe we'll get to that and then kind of unpack more of its meaning next week. So this is an often really overlooked uh, portion of Christ's work for us. The author of the Hebrews specifically says in Hebrews 6 that the anchor of our soul is actually Christ's presence in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. That the fact that we can go before the, the mercy seat of Christ, of God, and have our assurance as an anchor there, like that's what he says is the anchor of our hope. That kind of that kind of sounds weird. Like didn't he didn't Christ finish the work on the cross for us? Like isn't the resurrection and the and the cross the center? Well it is, but the ascension is also really significant. Um because it's Christ going to the God's right hand, the throne of authority and power, and he's bringing his sacrifice that he did on the cross into God's holy presence. And, and we are with him when he does that. So the ascension is kind of this image from the ancient world where, um, if you guys remember, I don't know if you guys are big Lord of the Rings fans, if you remember the, the, in Return of the King, where they're all, when Aragorn is coming in after the battle and he's victorious and everyone's out in their, they're decked out and they're all like looking awesome after their victory. And they're ascending into the city, Minas Tirith, and they're having this big celebration. And then he goes around and starts, in some sense, blessing all these people and honoring all these people that were on this quest. Well, that's kind of what the ascension is like. The ascension is Jesus, after this great victory in battle, going into the heavens, and he's at the right hand of God, and he starts just giving out gifts and celebration. 
he's just like handing everything out. It's like a giant pinata where he he's the pinata and he's just like giving him out giving out the benefits of his work. Um, and that's like the language in the backdrop of this great conquest because Christ has come and killed the dragon. Um, I, some, put, uh, some writer put it this way, that if you think about the Bible, it's, it's like this great conquest of, and a killer of dragons. And, and Jesus is going on this conquest and he's, and he's uprooting what, this, what Satan has done to the world, what we have done to the world. Um, but why is it necessary for this to happen? Why was this ascension necessary? Uh, so Jesus had had to fulfill all that the Father had called him to accomplish. Co- accomplish. Uh, God brought humans, us, like Adam, like we were talking about before, into the world to make the earth into this perfect image of heaven and to, and to mirror God's perfect will. That God's will, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will was that, as we see in the book of Revelation, that, that there would be this crystal sea covering everything and it would be a perfect reflection of the sun at, at peace with everything. And God's word would come and we would gladly, and gladly do it. Um, and this, obviously as we know the story, Adam didn't do that. Um, but Christ is the second Adam who's coming along, who's bringing the world into God's highest heavens. He's bringing it into where His will is completely perfect and, and, and breaking that into this world of undimmed glory that we should have had, that we have fallen short from. Um, so Christ is this King and He's coming on the earth and He's, he's battling everything out, but He does it through His suffering. He, he becomes this earth as our King and he suffers on our behalf. Well, when most kings like send their own servants into battle, we see a very different kind of king with Jesus. Like he's going out and doing this on our behalf. And he's ruling us by dying for us. He's ruling us by descending into our very death and into the realm of death that we're in in order to lift us up into heaven. Um, so this was... This ascension was absolutely necessary for him to accomplish everything that we need for our salvation, for our hope and assurance because he's bringing us into the glory that was once promised to us. And the only way he could first do that, as we talked about last week, was by, sent, by descending into the, where our sin leads us. Um, he had to go and show us where our sin leads us to death in order to break that power in order to take us up and, and redeem us in those moments of sin. Um, his valley of tears had to be the absolute lowest. And his descent into the hell was so that everyone, no matter what their condition, no matter what their sin, could come up with him. And that was like the only way that it could work. So his complete descent into the clutches of the devil was so that he could redeem us from the slave market. So he could go into the house of Egypt and redeem us from the slave market of sin. And then it could only happen if someone was, who was free, who was innocent, who was outside this realm of sin and death, 
would enter into it willingly and, and, and suffer for the condemned. No one within this realm could do it. No one within the realm of sin and death could save themselves. Someone who was completely perfect and who had God's will in his very heart, only he could do this great thing. Um, so little did the enemies of God know that by killing Jesus, that their actual their power would be undone, that they would actually lose and lose their hold on the world through the fear of death, through the slavery of death. I br- keep bringing that up throughout the whole couple quarters, but that's really essential because like, that that's how. Satan rules us in our passions is through that fear of death. And that is what Christ has to overcome to not only deal with the guilt of sin, but its power in our lives. And so Christ does that, and and he's resurrected, and God accepts his sacrifice, and he goes up in this great procession, uh, like the king in in Lord of the Rings. And we, as as Paul tells us, we're in that train. We're in the gravy train. You know what I mean? Like, we're... We're receiving all the benefits of that. <laughs> um, and after being raised from the dead, he ascends to this throne in God's courtroom in the highest heavens, and he pours out his spirit on the church, the spirit that in many ways represents glory, glorification, everything that God wants for us, the completion of who we are. God, Jesus starts pouring it out on us. Um, the spirit that was in God's presence in the Holy of Holies is now allowed to come back down and start changing the universe. Um, but he had to enter that glory before we could because as sinners, we cannot go into that, the presence of the living God. He had to go ahead of us and prepare the way, which is what we hear about in John all the time. It's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It is good that I go away. It is good. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, another comforter. Um, And he's entering in as the sacrifice, like in the Old Testament, with a day of atonement. And he's going into the holy place and he's putting that, he's putting himself right before the Father so that the Father can't see anything besides him when he looks at us. So that nothing gets past the Son's vision, God's vision of the Son. And when he sees us, it's through him. And that, that's why it's like essential that he ascended into heaven. Um, this new reality is bursting forth into the universe and it's, this, it's, it's a redemption of, of cosmic proportion. Because he goes into the Holy of Holies, into the highest heavens, he's above every other rule and authority. All authority is given to me, Jesus said, of things in heaven and things on earth. There's, there's nothing that's, below him, that, that's above him. Everything is being put underneath of his feet. And he ascends into heaven so that he can start spreading the light of redemption everywhere and bring us into that glory. We are now, by faith, because he's given us the Spirit, are united to him by faith. And and Paul says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Um, Christ as the second Adam is starting to unite all things in himself, all things in heaven and in earth and bring us to the glory that Adam failed to do. So it looks like I ran out of time. Um, so we'll finish up more about what the ascension actually, how that, how that the nitty-gritty of that actually affects us. But hopefully we can start bringing that all together and really seeing how 
the order of the universe is now breaking and cracking because Christ ascent into heaven and Satan's cast from the throne from the throne room of God. He can't accuse us and a whole host of like awesome stuff. Um, so next week we'll finish up the ascension and hopefully talk about the second coming and get to that and get back on track. Uh, any questions or thoughts so far? I, it's a pretty intense lesson. Um, questions, comments, rebukes, rebuttals? No? Okay, let's end in a word of prayer and I'll let you all go. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we truly thank you for this day and we thank you for allowing us to study just a little more about what it means that you were resurrected and ascended and, and that your son is sitting at your right hand um, where there are mercies for us every morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd prepare our hearts for worship and that we would really soak in worshiping with you and actually ascending into the heavenly he- into your heavenly host, which we're about to do, and be in your holy of holies in your presence because of what your son has done. Uh, and we ask these things in his name. Amen.